Last week, if you remember, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, at least the first part of 1 Corinthians 11. We tackled a rather tricky subject, didn't we? One of the most complex passages in Scripture, where Paul talks about head coverings and headship and men and women and the importance of masculinity in worship and the importance of the relationship of wives and husbands in worship and what that suggests about Paul's vision in inspired scripture of how, uh, yeah, of how, of how God creates us as men and women, how our masculinity and femininity, they're not incidental or accidental, they're, they're deliberate. It's, we are made men and women for our flourishing and God uses that in worship in a very specific way. You can look at the sermon from last time for more if you weren't around. Also, you might remember that last week, at the beginning of the sermon, I started with a reference to William Tyndale. I, I gave us a picture, didn't I remember, of William Tyndale, who was part of the English Reformation. This week, I want us to sort of hop back in our TARDIS. I'm sorry. I want us to hop back in our TARDIS because we're going to do a little bit more time travelling to sort of introduce our sermon this week. Uh, last time we went back to the 16th century in England, and this time we're going back to the 16th century in Germany. Well, very specifically, we rematerialize um, at the beginning of October 1529. And we find ourselves in the, uh, the, the newly minted university town of Marburg, uh, slightly west of centre of Germany. And we find ourselves in this, this castle, the Marburg Castle. You can see it there on your screens. And it is filled with people. Uh, it's filled with people. Now, since we're travelling with the Doctor, because we're in the TARDIS, again, I'm sorry, um, the Doctor tells us, he identifies for us a couple of people. He points at one particular chap and he says, that person there, that's Martin Luther himself. And that other person there, that is Ulrich Zwingli, who is one of the Swiss reformers, Martin Luther being German, but that's Zwingli, one of the Swiss reformers. The problem is, is that this doesn't seem like a happy meeting. Certainly doesn't seem like a happy gathering. Zwingli is upset. He's even weeping. We see him weeping. We see him asking Luther to think of their friendship, just to remember their friendship and, and not to speak in the way he's speaking. Whereas Luther, he is angry, he is defiant, and he approaches a table and he writes on it in a piece of chalk. And then he covers it over with a piece of cloth as if what he has written is of such sacred importance, like you would in church, perhaps with something else that we do in church that we cover with a cloth. And we ask the doctor, what did he write? What did Luther write on the table that was of such sacred importance to him? The words that were written on the table are Latin, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. Which, of course, you will recognise from the Gospels that Jesus' words when he institutes the Last Supper. Now, you might think I'm making this up. This really did happen. It was called the Colloquy of Marburg in October 1529. It was called by the Landgrave Philip of Hesse. How many of you are interested in history? Well, you're going to get it. Um, it was called by Philip of Hesse because Luther and Zwingli were bitterly divided, and those that they represented were bitterly 
divided. And they were divided, not necessarily or primarily over justification or sanctification or even that old chestnut predestination. They weren't divided over those things. They were divided over the Lord's Supper. Now, this might surprise us today because the Lord's Supper, let's imagine, I think many of us might think this, you know, that the Lord's Supper is kind of like a funny little habit that we do. You know, we gather for church and we eat a little bit of bread and a tiny bit of bread and we drink a little bit of what maybe grape juice, depending on which church you go to. And it's a strange thing that we maybe do once a month if we're lucky. It's kind of a bit bizarre and you maybe got to do the piece depending on which tradition you're in. You know, it's a strange thing that we do. And I think, you know, for many of us, when we think about the church's worship, you know, when the church gathers and worships, I think most of us immediately will think of sung worship. You know, when the praise band gets up or the organist goes to the organ or the choir gets, you know, it is sung worship that we have in mind when we say the church's worship. In most churches, that is where the focus is. Certainly in churches that I've been a part of in the past, you know, perhaps more uh, charismatic churches, what is the centre of the church building? It's the stage where the praise band occupies, and it's often filled with very, very expensive pieces of kit. And it is the centre, not only of the church building, where all the focus is, but also a lot of the time focus where the church money goes as well. Uh, many do talk about sung worship as being at the centre of their relationship with God. It is where we feel most spiritually in tune with God. And when we sing worship songs, that is when we feel like we're most spiritual for some of us. But this is very different to how it has been for a long time in church history. And this is why I'm mentioning Luther and Zwingli. Let me explain a little bit of why. God commands his covenant people to meet together. We read that in Hebrews 10.25. I referenced it earlier at the beginning of the service. God commands his covenant people to meet together. And when you look at the New Testament, what does God explicitly command God's people to do when we meet together? What is explicitly commanded? You know, when it's directly addressing the corporate gathering of God's people, what is commanded? Well, think about that, that verse that we've heard so many times from Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So for the vast majority of church history, when people have thought about the church's worship, they thought about two things. Preaching the word, because the spirit has inspired the scriptures. And secondly, celebrating the Lord's Supper, because the Spirit has anointed the table, and it is in the preaching and at the table of our Lord that is where we worship God. That is where God is, perhaps if you say, most accessible to us. Not necessarily the sun worship, but in at the table and through the Word. Now, this might be something that we don't necessarily have in our minds today, but for all of us, for all of time, according to the Scriptures, God has promised to meet us in the word and at the table. And that is why Christians throughout all of church history have taken it so seriously. That's why Luther and Zwingli had a big spat over the Lord's Supper, because they took it so seriously. And indeed, in 1 Corinthians 11, in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we see Paul taking it 
very seriously. So what we're going to do, oh, and in the passage that we're going to look at, Paul even acknowledges that there are divisions over it, a bit like Luther and Zwingli. So what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack the rest of 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the passage in particular when Paul looks at the Lord's Supper. But please join me for a moment just praying before we start. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would please anoint this word that I've got to share. Lord, I pray that you would please speak to each one of us, that there would be life in this sermon. Lord, I cannot do this without you. This is impossible without you. Without you, I have wasted my time. Everyone else is wasting theirs. And Lord, all I'm doing is just talking and sharing my opinions. But with you, Lord, if you anoint this, if you are with me, if you are with us, as your word is expounded upon, Oh, Lord, then, <laughs> Lord, if you are with us, then who can stand against us? Father, I pray you would have mercy upon my preparation. You would have mercy upon me now. And, Lord, that you would please anoint my tongue. You would anoint my heart and my mind and my mental acuity. And, Lord, that you would please gift me with the ability to preach into a little webcam such that your people might be blessed. And that, Lord, all of us, myself included, would grow in the knowledge of you, the knowledge that changes us and transforms us right deep down. So we know it in our knower. Lord, I pray that you would please bless us with this and give us a hunger for the table of the Lord. Give us a hunger for your table, we pray. I may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart please be pleasing to you, pleasing in your sight. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let us keep going. Right, Very quickly, right, before we start, it's worth just putting this out. Because when a preacher might preach on the subject of the Lord's Supper, or when the pastor might talk about the Lord's Supper, you know, there are all sorts of terms that one might use to describe the same thing. Let me get this up here. There are a handful of terms used to describe the same thing. So you've got communion. You know, many of us will use that term or expression. Uh, and that is a translation of the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, which is used, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 7, where Paul says that we, we're going to look at this later, you know, that we share in the body and blood of Christ, we share in the table, we partake in the table. And that is the Greek word koinonia. It is often translated fellowship. So when we use the word communion, it's right there from 1 Corinthians 10. Also from 1 Corinthians 10 is the phrase, the Lord's table. As Paul says, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We're going to look at this later, but there's our second phrase, the Lord's table. What about Eucharist? Now, this is a phrase, a term, that might be used in other traditions. I don't have a problem with it precisely because it is also from Scripture. It is Eucharisteo is the Greek uh, phrase, the Greek uh, infinitive that Jesus uses, uh, that we see Jesus use in uh, Luke 22 when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He gives thanks, he breaks the bread and institutes the Lord's Supper. So that is where the term Eucharist comes from. And of course, the phrase, the Lord's Supper, we get from the very chapter we're going to be looking at, 1 Corinthians 11. So we've got all these different phrases, 
Um, none of them are bad. They all refer to the same thing. Uh, we might have our preferences, but that's a different question. Um, but I'm going to be using a lot of these interchangeably. So I, I mentioned this at the beginning so we know that I'm referring to the same thing and we know where I'm getting these terms from. Okay, shall we read the first little part of our section together? This is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. Paul says, Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Okay, push back to me. So Paul started, you might remember from last time, Paul starts 1 Corinthians 11 by commending the Corinthians for abiding by apostolic instruction, for maintaining the traditions handed down to them, specifically with regard to head coverings for women slash wives in worship. But now here, as we've just seen in this passage, he is moving from good cop to bad cop because this is something, this is an area in which the Corinthians are not doing well at all. And we might ask, what were they doing wrong specifically? Well, remember this from our reading just now, verses 20 to 22, the beginning of that verse. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? <laughs> the Lord's Supper, basically, in the Corinthian church at this point, is being treated licentiously. Licentiously. That is to say that it is being treated as if, by some, as if there is a license to do as they please. So notice what Paul says there in verse 20, before we even get into that, right? That what they're doing, because of the way they're treating it, is not the Lord's Supper at all. That is important for us, because what it assumes is that there are certain ways of doing the Lord's Supper that are the real thing, and there are certain ways of doing the Lord's Supper that are not the real thing. Just as with church, as we said last time, and as we said when looking at 1 Corinthians 3, just as we said that the church is not our plaything, so too for things of the church. The Lord's Supper is not our plaything. We don't get to change the variables and call it the Lord's Supper. God gets to define these terms. And Paul is saying that in the way they are defining terms, it is not the Lord's Supper. What's happening? Some in Corinth are taking the elements, that's the theological Klingon for bread and wine, they're taking the elements, the bread and the wine, and they're using them, some of them, to stuff their faces, and others of them are using the bread and the wine to get drunk. I suppose the wine specifically would be hard to get drunk on bread. But they're using the bread, stuffing their faces. They're using the wine and getting drunk. Now, it's possible at this point we can glean from this that some, um, the Lord's Supper, sorry, was used at this, part, at this point in church history as part of a larger feast. In Jude 1, for example, Jude 1 verse 12, 
um, the apostle there says that these, talking about false teachers, not so good people within the congregation, these are blemishes on your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves. Maybe that's a reference to the same sort of phenomenon. Maybe. And maybe it implies that they are taking the Lord's Supper as part of a larger meal. And I know some Christians make a big deal about this and insist that it has to be part of a meal. But it is just as possible that in Corinth there simply needed to be enough of the bread and the wine to share between a large congregation. Every indication is that it was a reasonably large congregation and therefore there would have been enough bread to stuff yourself and enough wine to get drunk. The point is we don't know. And sometimes you can make too much of it or sometimes you can too little of it. I'm just giving you the information so you can make up your own minds. But in the background of this problem that Paul is addressing is Paul's concern that the Corinthians, that all of us who believe in the Lord, cultivate Christ-likeness, specifically a servant-heartedness that reflects God's own character and Christ's own character specifically. Look at this. This is verse 22, all of it in full. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt from the, for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Notice there, again, do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Remember what Paul is going to go on to say in two chapters time, chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, that real like love what is it? It's patient. It's kind. And it does not insist on its own way. It is servant-hearted. Indeed, it reflects Christ as servant. As you'll say in Philippians 2, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how he did not seek to um, seek, did not seek to have advantage, hold on to the advantages of being equal with God, but instead poured himself out, even unto death, even death on a cross. The servant-heartedness that must be, uh, I suppose, uh, that must flow from us, as those of us who are united in Him, was not being seen in the Corinthian church because they were regarding themselves over others and yet Jesus said, himself says all those who wish to be first shall be last and those who, will, uh, who are last shall be first all those who wish to exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted that is exactly what Paul has in mind there is a need to be loving towards your fellow brother and sister and that is not what these people were being they were not being loving uh, Another thing I just want to highlight here. Did you notice something in uh, verses, what would that be, 17 to 22? Did you notice that Paul repeats himself? He repeats a certain phrase several times. When you come together. When you come together. He uses this uh, phrase sunekomai, um, that is in the Greek. It is a phrase that only appears by, uh, by Paul. Paul only uses it in this letter, 1 Corinthians. And he uses it eight times in total, and five of those eight times are in this chapter. 
He uses it in verse 17, in verse 18, in verse 20, and in verses 33 and 44. 17, 18, 20, 33, and 34. He says, when you come together, sunekomine. He repeats it over and over again. The Lord's Supper is something that happens when we come together as a church. Now this says a couple of things about how Paul understands the Lord's Supper, even before we get into this proper, you know, even before we get into Paul's main discussion of the Lord's Supper, we already know something about what it means or what it entails. First, it's something that happens when the body is gathered. It's something that happens when the body is gathered. I don't have this in my notes, but I should mention one of the other times um, that Paul uses this phrase sunakomai is in 1 Corinthians 7 referring to sexual congress between men and women. Now, I don't mean to say anything silly there. I'm just saying that it, Paul really does, when he's using this phrase, he really does mean physically being together. He really does mean this. It, it is something that happens when the body is gathered. Uh, it is not, there's no such thing. Paul did not have any understanding or any notion of individual communion. I was just, you know, me on my lonesome doing it. And he had no imagining of sort of a distanced communion. It was when the body comes together. The second thing that we can learn here is that this is, the Lord's Supper is something that happens specifically, again, when we are physically together. The physical matters to Paul and it matters to God. How was Jesus resurrected? Was he resurrected spiritually and only spiritually? No, he was resurrected physically. Spiritually, his physical body was raised from the dead. And this matters. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians of not wishing to be unclothed, that is unclothed with his body, not to rip his body off, but to be further clothed. God will glorify his physical flesh just as he glorified the physical flesh of Jesus. And this matters for us because what it suggests is that the Lord's Supper, right, this is sort of what's going on. The physically present bread and wine communicate the spiritually present body and blood of Jesus to his physically present body who are saved by his blood. I'm going to say that again. The physically present bread and wine communicate the spiritually present body and blood of Jesus to his physically present body who are saved by his blood. It is of utmost importance to Paul that we are gathered when we do this and that we that the physical act of taking the bread and the wine matters because the physical matters to God. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. And let us read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Now we'll be very familiar with this, no doubt, not just from 1 Corinthians 11, which is often read out when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in church, but also from the Gospels, Luke 22 and elsewhere. Paul faithfully repeats here what we read in the Gospels, which I won't get into now, but is a good sign of the historicity of the Gospels, because here Paul is repeating that which we um, that which we elsewhere read in a completely different book, and we find that it matches perfectly. But that's a separate question, right? We can always do an apologetic session defending the historicity of the Gospels another time. But as I said, this is something that we're very familiar with, but it's worth us being attentive to what is going on here, attentive to Paul's words. Last week, Paul Needham, not the Apostle Paul, Paul Needham said on the phone that there is nothing new in the New Testament. And I wholeheartedly agree with you, Paul. And what we're about, what we're reading here, what we're handling here is a good illustration of what Paul Needham, not the Apostle Paul, meant. I want you to look at this. Look at this. This is from Exodus 12, a handful of verses from Exodus 12. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. Now, does any of that sound familiar to you? Does any of that ring a bell, specifically with regard to what Paul is reporting and what the Gospels report with regard to Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper? Obviously, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, it is a Passover meal. And as such, it is echoing what happens at the first Passover. And what does happen on the first Passover? A lamb is slain. His blood is put on the two doorposts. They eat of the lamb. They eat it with bread. And when God sees the blood, God's wrath passes over them. And they do this as a perpetual ordinance, as a day, as a thing of remembrance. And that directly parallels how Jesus himself talks about the Lord's Supper when he institutes it in Luke 22. And as we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus, our Paschal Lamb, saves us from the wrath of God, the wrath that is to come. And we take the blood of the Lamb and we eat of the bread and we do this as a meal of remembrance. And so the immediate parallel of us celebrating the Lord's Supper is with the Passover. But all throughout the Old Testament, the groundwork is laid from the Lord's Supper, not just Passover, even though that's primary, all throughout the Old Testament. Of course, one of the clearest examples is Melchizedek, and I've spoken about this before at church, Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, who the author of Hebrews says was a priest, Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram, uh, Abram before he becomes Abraham, with a meal of bread and wine. So what we see in Genesis 14 is the Christ-like Melchizedek blessing Abram, who is the beginning of God's people, with bread and wine as a sign of God's blessing. And so now, Christ himself, the great high priest, has given us this meal, given us God's people, this meal of bread and wine as a sign of God's blessing. 
the Lord's Supper is foreshadowed elsewhere in the Old Testament. How about this, for example? The bread of the presence on the table in the tabernacle. The, the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. So Israel lives in safety, untroubled, is Jacob's abode in a land of grain. Grain being a synonym here for, often used as a synonym for bread. Grain and wine with the heavens drop down like dew. Or how about the promise of God in Joel 2, speaking about his future new covenant people. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. The Lord's Supper is foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. Now, here's the next question that we need to address. Assuming this passage, right? How does Paul intend for us, outside of these Old Testament foreshadowings, how does he intend for us to understand the Lord's Supper? Okay, so it is a meal of remembrance, like Passover. It is the fulfilment of many Old Testament foreshadowings. But how do we understand it for ourselves when we are doing it? What's going on? Now, I've said this before in church. You'll have heard me say this, that the Lord's Supper invites us to celebrate the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. And we see all three of these elements in Paul's understanding of the Lord's Supper in this letter, in 1 Corinthians. So let's first say that the Lord's Supper invites us to celebrate the God who was. What does Paul say? This, or rather as he's reporting the words of Jesus, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we celebrate the God who was, Christ himself who defeated Satan's sin, death and hell. He finally nailed to the cross the, the legal demands, erasing them for us, creating one new humanity. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now those of us who are in him are part of a wider family with him as the firstborn of many brethren. And so on and so on. He has abolished death by his death on the cross. And we look back to that moment in remembrance of him. And like the Passover meal, God's covenant people at the Lord's Supper remember their new covenant with the Lord. That's an aspect of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. It's God's covenant people remembering their covenant with the Lord, which starts with Christ on the cross, dying for our sins. The Lord's Supper also, according to Paul, invites us to celebrate the God who is, who is with us. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 isn't the only part of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the Lord's table. He also talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10 and and when Dave preached on that a few weeks ago, he sort of he addressed it a little bit and rightly said, you know, we're going to look at this later. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 17, Paul says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Other translations say instead of sharing, a participation in the blood, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now here's the thing. Paul does seem to suggest here that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
something else is going on as well as remembrance, which is very important. But something else is happening. God is specifically blessing it in a very particular way. Because Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, he compares, he parallels our taking of the table of the Lord with the with the idolatrous partaking of the table of demons. He says in what verse 21, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In the same way that there is real, some kind of real spiritual participation with demons when you partake of that idolatrous table, there is some kind of real spiritual feasting, some kind of real spiritual participation that is happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper, according to Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10. That is why it is called a sacrament in other traditions, perhaps more than ours. That is to say, it is a sign. What's happening physically by us taking the the bread and the wine, which are just bread and wine, what's happening physically is a sign of the spiritual reality. And what is the spiritual reality? The Holy Spirit anoints the table of the Lord and God promises to use it in a way that is very special and unique. Because by the Holy Spirit, when we gather together and, and participate in the Lord's Supper, we, by the Holy Spirit, participate in Christ himself. We who united to him and he to us, that the Lord's Supper is a very visible display of our, our spiritual participation and union with Jesus. It's a bit like Jacob's Ladder in the Old Testament. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're taken into the heavenly places by the Holy Spirit to, to feast with the Lord. There is a spiritual withness, right? God promises to be with us when we celebrate the Lord's table. And by the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. And this meal is a display of our participation in him. As Paul says himself, the cup of blessing that we bless is in order sharing a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing, a participation in the body of Christ? And this is a spiritual thing that happens via the physical signs. Okay, the Lord's Supper also, according to Paul 1 Corinthians, invites us to celebrate the God who is to come. What does Paul say? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Awesome. The Lord's Supper is a prophetic meal. It is a prophetic meal. Our very participation in the Lord's table proclaims something to the world and to ourselves and to one another. What does it proclaim? Firstly, we are a new humanity. As we were just saying, we have been united with Jesus and we are now one with him and he one with us. As Peter says in 2 Peter, we are participate we we have become participants of the divine nature. Secondly, the new world is coming. We will feast forever with him. The marriage supper of the lamb has been prepared and when Christ comes, it won't just be a one-off meal, it will be an eternal feast, a forever celebration. And as Susan had us read out earlier from Psalm 34, this is the third thing, 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. It doesn't just proclaim that we're a new humanity. It doesn't just proclaim that a new world is coming. It proclaims to all those watching, those who don't belong to him yet, that if they too would come and taste and see that the Lord is good, they would be happy. They would be as happy as those who take refuge in him. So it is that threefold proclamation. To ourselves, we are a new humanity. To, if you will, to the heavens, there is a new world coming. And to our non-Christian friends, come and taste and see. If you're hungry for this meal, Christ himself will give you the bread that will cause you never to hunger again. Okay. Paul also says, doesn't he, in verse 25, that this cup, well, again, it's Jesus saying it, but Paul reports it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Eucharist is the new covenant meal for God's new covenant people. What is the basis for that new covenant? Those of you who know the, law, the scriptures well, will know what Paul says about this. That those who are truly of Abraham are not those of the flesh, but those of the promise. Those who believe the promise of God. Faith is the basis of the new covenant, and faith is the basis by which, through which, we come to the table of the Lord. And this tells us something about how we ought to come and how we ought not to come when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and that is what Paul talks about next. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this many, for the, sorry, for this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. Okay. Let me just push back to this screen. Before we do anything else, we need to reckon with verses 27 to 30, really. And you've got 27 and 30 up there on your screen. It's a bit like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Or Alexander the Coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4. This should sober us. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be answerable. Will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. As the author of Hebrews repeats, and as the law of God states, the Lord our God is a consuming fire. And we're going to get to the specifics of this in a moment, but for right now, we've got to ask ourselves, and I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe these words? 
do we believe these words? Because Paul did, and presumably the Corinthians did. They knew it firsthand. And great men and women of God, like Luther and Zwingli and many others throughout church history, believed these words. It is only recently, it would appear, uh, that we seem to be approaching the Lord's Supper with such frivolousness. Ah, I shouldn't really say that. It's always been approached with frivolous th frivolousness throughout history. But I, I, I suppose I should just say, I have seen it approached frivolously. I have seen it approached frivolously, as if it's just a strange little thing that we do, and it doesn't really need to be taken seriously or soberly. And yet that is exactly how the Word of God says that we ought to approach the supper. And I suppose an analogy might help. If you were invited, if you received a, a letter in the mail today, or tomorrow morning, I guess, because it's Sunday, if you received a letter in the mail asking you to dine with the Queen, how would you behave? How would you behave? And if you tell me you would treat it like you do a dinner on your lap in front of the TV, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You would approach it with joyfulness and with expectation and anticipation and hopefulness and fun. But you would approach it soberly. You would approach it seriously. You would not treat it frivolously. And if that is true for an earthly monarch, how much more true for the table of the eternal king? This is really important. Do we take this seriously? Because one big question now comes from this, doesn't it? What does it mean when Paul says eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? It all hinges on verse 29. You don't have that on your screen, but verse 29, when Paul says all who he speaks about those who eat and drink without discerning the body, those who eat and drink without discerning the body. Remember last time when I talked about the homonyms, you know, the words, the same word that can be is pronounced the same way but can mean different things? So too for body here. Because that's the question. What or who does the body refer to? Paul seems to be using the body here in a vertical way, in a vertical way, and in a horizontal way. Vertically, Paul is talking about discerning Christ himself, the body of Christ himself, Christ truly present with us. Because by the Spirit, when we celebrate the Lord's table, he is truly present. And by the Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we do participate in his body and his blood. We do feast on him spiritually in the heavenly places. He is present with us. And eating unworthily here means not discerning that he is truly present on the vertical axis. It means coming to the table of the Lord with a heart full of rebellion towards Jesus. Perhaps you're doing something on a Sunday morning which you don't care for, or perhaps you're doing something on a Sunday morning that completely contradicts literally everything you've done until you've walked through those church doors. It means not discerning the blood, the body and blood bought righteousness of Christ, trusting only in the self 
and not throwing yourself at the feet of Christ on the cross. So that is the vertical axis, not discerning Christ himself. But on the horizontal axis, this is where the homonym thing comes in. It doesn't just refer to that body, the literal body of Christ. It refers to the metaphorical body of Christ, which is the church itself. The body of Christ, as Paul would put it, referring to us, brothers and sisters. It is, if you will, similar to 1 John 4. Uh, this concern that John especially has in his letters. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. In this regard, not discerning the body on the horizontal axis means having treated your brothers and sisters with well, as Paul says, showing contempt for the church of God. Perhaps you're harbouring unforgiveness in your heart. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Perhaps you've had a massive barney with the pastor before the service, or you're thinking of having one after the service and you're fuming. You miserable sinner, who was forgiven of very little, or the other way around, forgiven of a huge debt, and yet you begrudge your brother or sister of very little. You hypocrite, you whitewashed tomb. Go to your brother, reconcile yourself to him before presenting your offering before the Lord. And that is the horizontal axis. And I imagine these situations are rare, but this is why certain traditions have the peace that we enjoy before uh, before taking the Lord's Supper. It is to get it out the way so that we come to the table of the Lord in a way that is not unworthy. Okay, hopefully this is making sense. Because one last big question comes from this passage as well, this passage in 1 Corinthians. What does it mean to examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Remember that? Verse 28. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean? What does it mean to examine yourself? I do think there are some extraordinary moments when it is necessary for the elders of the church, those shepherds that God has appointed, to sometimes physically stop someone from taking communion. That's just, that's, I think that is a reasonable inference from this text, not least because Paul uses this phrase to examine, to describe the church examining someone. And we've seen Paul being more than willing in 1 Corinthians 5 to exercise his rule with regard to the man sleeping with his stepmother. So although we might get a little bit itchy about this, there are exceptional moments when the elders need to wield the crook. However, that is not necessarily what Paul is saying here. The onus that Paul is placing here is on us to examine ourselves, not for us to be examined by another. The priority that Paul communicates is that we ought to examine ourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is part 
of the active Christian life, the life of sanctification, our own discipleship. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You know, we ought to be always examining ourselves like this. But here specifically, he's encouraging we do this before we come to the table. And thankfully, I don't think this is very complicated. I certainly don't think it's like some complex Roman Catholic system of penance in which we have to sort of flagellate ourselves before coming to the table. I actually think it's very, very simple. Have this in mind then when we return to church and when we can finally celebrate the Lord's Supper together. When we come to the table, first of all, do not, do not in the words of the Book of Common Prayer, do not cloak or dissemble your sin before the Lord. Sort it out with your brother and sister, but between you and the Lord, do not cloak it. Do not try and hide it. And don't try and dissemble it. Don't try and make excuses for it. Rather, confess your sin. Turn to him. It doesn't, right, listen, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's the first thing that you want to do. Because what do Adam and Eve want to do? They want to run a million miles from God. Sometimes your flesh wants to run a million miles from the Lord and yet in your spirit you know it's the right thing. And in that scenario, do not turn from him. He is your merciful, loving father. Confess your sin before you approach that table. Confess it to him. Almighty and most merciful father, I have erred and strayed from thy ways like a lost sheep. I have offended against thy holy laws. I have left undone that which I ought to have done, and I have done that which I ought not to have done, and there is no health in me. Those were the words of Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer, and they're helpful words. I'm not saying you should say them too, but that's the posture. Confess your sin before the Lord. And having confessed your sin before the Lord, remind yourself, remind your soul of the great promises of God. If we confess our sins, he who is merciful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to me then, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you've confessed your sins in faith, he will forgive you. And the third thing, having confessed having trusted in the promises of the Lord, all of which are yes and amen in Christ, lift up your hearts. Lift up your hearts to see Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. And trust in Christ as you approach the table, not in your flesh. Say to him as you walk those steps to take that bread and to take that wine, Lord, I trust not in my own righteousness, but only in yours. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are my portion and my delight forever. Confess your sins, trust in the promises, lift up your hearts, and take the bread and the wine with joy, brother and sister, for that is your privilege as a covenant child of God. I want to finish with something. Because as I said, as we're coming to a close now, and in fact we're coming to the close of the service itself. This is the 15th service we're having in lockdown. And it is the last, hopefully, 
the last of such services. We might change it up a little bit, but in its current form, this is the last of these streams. And I want to finish with something, because the other week I read this from Psalm 81. I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. The rock of Christ himself, right? I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Oh Lord, help me to communicate this, because I'm not quite sure. There's something here, and I want to communicate this. And I want to communicate it well, and maybe it'll, maybe it's just going to be very simple. The Lord help when God does something, in fact, when he does anything for us and for our salvation, he does it by giving himself. He does it by giving himself. Sometimes it's easy for us to imagine that when God does something, he sets it up and he says to us, that's it, that's it. Now go down the corridor. It's the sixth door on your left. Sit down on the chair, someone will be waiting for you, and eventually go through the door, sit down on the chair, and there you go. When God does something, he doesn't point us down the corridor to the sixth door on the left. He points us to himself. Because all that he does for us and for our salvation, he does for us in and with and through himself. He feeds us with himself. As Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And what we encounter when we come to the table of the Lord is a great, visible, physical, tangible, real reminder of this truth that God has not given you a sixth door on the left. He has given you himself. Listen, we do not know all of the various manifold purposes of God throughout this season that have seen us endure 15 services like this. We do not know all the reasons why the Lord would have done what he has done in the way that he has done it. But let me tell you this. He has been feeding us with himself. He has done it by giving us himself. He has not been unfaithful. He is no man's debtor. This was strewn with purpose and the purpose was to give you himself, to make you rely on the rock. And when you turn to the rock, when you go to the rock, you would find honey and food and the finest of wheat. For on this mountain I will prepare for you a rich food and I will swallow up death forever. Whatever God has done, whatever he has done it, he has done it to give us himself. And I would encourage you to reflect on this season, to not just go back to church on the 12th of July. And I've missed the whole point. 
but instead to reflect on this season and ask the Lord, Lord, how have you been feeding me? How have you been feeding me choice honey from the rock? Lord, I don't want this season to have been wasted. I want to be different. I don't want to go back to church lesser than I came into this season. I don't want to go into it with more of a disability or more of a limp than I had when I first entered it. I want to come out of it well fed. And he stands ready and willing to feed you today. And when we return to church, he will feed us with the body and blood of his own son via the Holy Spirit, spiritually participating in him. And we will be together. And all of it will be a great preview of that day when the marriage supper of the Lamb is undertaken and we feast with him and on him forevermore. For he would feed us with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. There is a song that I'm about to play that I've played several times over the last few weeks. And one of the verses says, Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours. He is ours forevermore. For his flesh is too true food, and his blood is true drink, and he has given us himself. And if you hunger after him today, if you do not know him, let me finish it with this. He would feed you too. If you're hungry, come. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. What are you waiting for? Today is the day. Today is the day. Thank you for all your support of the last 15 weeks. Soli dear Gloria, to the glory of God alone.